Lynn Hiles Ministries presents Dr. Lynn Hiles That You Might Have Life. And here's your host, Dr. Lynn Hiles. Thank you for joining us again this week and welcome back to the program. Uh, we've been sharing a series, as you well know, if you follow our ministry from the book of Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, and Zechariah, all from the books of Restoration. Because I believe that what the Word of the Lord is for this season is certainly been from Nehemiah, Arise, Let Us Build. And what we've shown over probably 30-some programs is a roadmap to Reformation. I believe this is an important series, and, and uh, I believe the Lord is using it mightily. We're hearing from people all over. One of the main things that I believe is important about it is that we don't find ourselves simply in a place where we are looking for decline or we're looking for things to fall apart or the sky to fall. But I believe God is raising up a company of apostles and prophets in this hour that are truly new covenant prophets and apostles, evangelists, pastors, and teachers that are arising to the work of reformation. I believe we will go down in history as a part of an ongoing reformation. You know, when Luther nailed his 90-some point theses to the door of the Catholic Church, he had no intention of splitting the church. He had every intention of bringing reform. And I believe that we are in an hour when God is doing something that's bigger than revival. And as you have heard us talk about these things throughout Ezra and Nehemiah, it talks about the different families that were on the wall. And, uh, you know, it would be an inexhaustible study. We have looked at some of the names, uh, you know, that are uh, of, of the people that were working on the wall. And each, each one significant. For instance, Hananiah built in the valley gate, built, built the valley gate in, in the gate of the valley. And Hananiah's name means grace. Grace always builds in the valley. But the key thought is we all need to find our place on the wall. You know, I, I was thinking the other day, uh, there's so much in this hour of cancel culture and, and uh, you know, division and, uh, uh, you know, just splitting and, and d divisiveness in the body of Christ that I believe that God is sending forth a call of unity, and we need to unify over some basic things, and we'll get to that because I want to talk about the old gate in this series of teachings, and it'll probably be more than just one. But as I began to think yesterday, I thought, you know, our, the truth of it is many of us have what I call a tribal mentality. We have found our tribe. We, we, we get around people that think like us, who act like us, and we are afraid to be challenged in our thinking by other groups. But I can tell you, having been in ministry now for 41 years of full-time traveling ministry, I have gleaned something from every camp I have been around. And while you may have a certain tribe that you seem to fit into, you are still part of a holy nation that God is restoring and while you may not be at a certain gate, uh, you know, these gates were entry points. There's some kind of an access that they give us to the city of God, which we've already established is not just a place in the new covenant. It is the community of faith. It is the bride, the lamb's wife. 
I'm afraid sometimes we are guilty in the American church, especially the American church, and not just probably that, but I'm more familiar with that. But we are probably guilty of always picking out what's wrong with the church, and it's almost like spousal abuse. I don't think Jesus is real pleased with every time we get in the pulpit, we talk about how bad and how ugly His bride is. I think we need to shift some of that, and we need to find some common ground and find some unity. You know, I think I shared back some time ago that Ezra, especially, in the, and some of these guys begin to come back and to the city and begin to build the temple during the Feast of Tabernacles when they would bring the branches of goodly trees and weave them together to build booths to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And I believe that God is calling us in this hour to come out of our sealed houses where we have, this is my group, that's your group, this is the other group. Because although we're branches of goodly trees, we're the trees of the Lord, we're the planting of Him, trees of righteousness. The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon. You can see the typology here. That when those branches of these goodly trees that sometimes don't necessarily grow together, come together and they join together, they create this tabernacle, this Feast of Tabernacles, which is the Feast of Maturity, the Feast of Harvest, the Feast of, fur, of Fullness. And it is only as we come together that we can house the glory of God that He wants to release in the earth in this hour. And I believe as we stand and, and declare that as truly as I live, saith God, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, but the glory of the Lord must be seen upon us, arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Gentiles will come, and kings to the brightness of your rising. This is, should be the church's finest hour as we begin to lay aside some things and begin to unite. Let me just say quickly that, uh, you know, if you've missed any of this series, I really encourage you to go back and watch them again. We archive everything that we air uh, on our YouTube channel and also uh, on our podcast, and the audio portions are on a podcast, and the audio portions are also on an RSS feed for your Android device. So you can go back and watch them at any time, and there is an easy way to get to all of that, and you can subscribe to it. It's free of charge. I think people would pay a lot for these just, if I, if I did this in a classroom setting, there would be a lot of charge for it, but instead we're putting it out there for free. But right on my website, in the upper right-hand corner, there are little icons of the YouTube, uh, the podcast, and the RSS feed. If you just click on them, it'll take you directly to those, those feeds, and you can watch them at your, own, at your leisure, on demand, and you can subscribe to them. Once again, they are free. If you would like to give an offering to support that, there's links right there as well on our website to be able to do that. Today, I want to get back into, I think we've already covered five or six of these gates that Nehemiah and Ezra rebuilt because they speak of a roadmap to restoration, something that God wants to restore. Now, today I want to talk about the old gate. Uh, uh, verse 6 uh, of Nehemiah chapter 3 says, this is Nehemiah the third chapter. It says, Moreover, the old gate repaired Jehoiadan, the son of Pesha, and Meshulam, the son of Besoadai. And they laid the beams thereof, and set up the doors thereof, and the locks thereof, and the bars thereof. 
And next unto him repaired Melatiah the Gibeonite, and Jadon the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon and Mizpah, unto the throne of the governor on this side of the river. I want you to see that they built to the throne of the governor. In other words, you could start from the old gate, but it takes you clear to the throne of the uh, of, uh, of the governor. And I believe the governor in the new covenant is the Holy Spirit. Uh, one of the things that we find is that Nehemiah ultimately becomes the governor of the city, and Nehemiah's name means the comforter. When the Holy Spirit becomes your governor, uh, that's when the kingdom of God is established in your individual life. See, the kingdom doesn't come from the top down in the sense of political powers. Like uh, It does not come from the White House. It has to come from your house. In other words, it comes from the bottom up. It's a grassroots movement where the kingdom of God is established in the hearts of men and women who are built upon the right foundation. These guys... Uh, laid the beams thereof, set up the doors thereof, and the locks thereof, and the bars thereof. I think there's some things that we need to be, we need to lock down, as it were. There's some things that we need to refuse to back down. There are some things that as we progress, even in our revelation, that we need to look back at and keep the old landmarks of some things that were right. Now, we're going to, I'm not talking about going back to the old covenant. But I am talking about there are some things that I believe are powerful that we need to uh, lock down and, and keep us locks on the door, guard the things that, uh, are, that should be part of this gate that leads us into the city of God. And uh, I want to just read this to you from Matthew 13, verse 52. It said, then he said, this is talking Jesus, said, and then he said unto them, therefore every scribe which is instructed unto the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is a householder, which brings forth out of his treasures things new and old. As I thought about that, uh, my main thought was here is that there are some things that we must not depart from. We must not depart from the foundation of the truth of the person and work of Jesus Christ. There are some things that for me are just not negotiable. Now, in this segment, let me just talk about pulling some things both new and old. While I, de I, I absolutely believe that we are not under the old covenant, and that you have heard, if those of you who watch me know that we teach a new and better covenant, we don't just treat, teach the grace aspect of it, that's a powerful part, the kingdom's a powerful part, a lot of stuff in the gospel. But uh, in preaching the new and better covenant, you, you see me clearly talk about we are not under the law of Moses, and that age of that covenant came to an end with the removal of Old Covenant Jerusalem and Judaism in the first century. But if you listen to my teaching or you read any of my books, what you will see is that I take Old Testament types and shadows and pictures because what they were was they were pictures to show us from an Old Covenant. They were pictures to show us pictures of redemption of what was coming. In the Old Testament, it is Jesus concealed. In the new covenant, it is Jesus revealed. The old covenant was the shadow, and the new covenant is the reality or the substance. 
The Old Covenant literally gives us prophetic pictures that give us a language for how to communicate the gospel. I was recently with a pastor um, of a rather large church, and he said to me, uh, your books have literally given us a language, us younger preachers, a language of how to say these things that God is saying to us in picture form. Because I think people you know, think in terms of pictures. And what you see is that these pictures are the shadows, or the shadow is because something somewhere was standing in the light. And so if you keep on, if, like in other words, if you would, if, if, depending on how the lights are falling in the studio today, uh, you can see shadows maybe around me or on me if there's the light are not falling in the exact way. But if you follow that shadow enough, you're going to come to the substance. And I could come through this and just, you know, let me just, uh, let me just talk about a few of them. I think some powerful pictures is when, first of all, I, I, I mean, there's so many things that I could talk about that are shadows, and you probably heard me talk about them over, over the years listening to us teach the gospel on television. But I think about Abraham, whom God said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, and offer him upon one of the mountains of Moriah. And as Abraham is ascending the mountain, to go up the mountain, God is uh, calling him to offer his son. The Bible said that Abraham accounted by faith that God was able to raise him from the dead, in which he did in a figure, the New Testament says. If, and all of a sudden, as you begin to watch the story of Abraham unfold, you start to see a type and shadow of redemption, a God, a father who would offer up his own son as an offering but as you come up the mountain, and as, as Isaac and Jake, Isaac, I'm sorry, and Abraham are ascending that mountain, Isaac looks at his father and says, My father, behold the wood and the knife, but where is the ram for a sacrifice? And Abraham declares something by faith that's very powerful. He said, My son, God will provide himself. I think that's a powerful key. God will provide himself a ram for an offering. And while they're coming up one side of the mountain with a problem, there's a ram coming up the other side of the mountain with a provision. And when he sees this ram caught in the thicket, it is a picture of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And we could fast forward into the New Testament and show that Jesus was the ram caught in the thicket because a ram is a male lamb for sacrifice. And when they put a crown of thorns on his head, he became the ultimate ram caught in the thicket as God would provide himself a sacrifice and redemption's picture was there. We could talk about Noah who built an ark to the saving of his house and say that this ark of Noah is a picture of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. All of these stories through the Bible are pictures of redemption. I understand that even some of these uh, stories are found in other religious books and other religions because God was probably trying to show them the story of redemption as well. Because when you see the picture of the ark, the ark is a picture of Jesus, who is in the uh, who is the vehicle out of an old world dominated by sin. Noah, uh, not I believe Noah's name means rest. And and when you see that God wanted to bring people into rest, and uh, God told him to build an ark to the saving of his house, that that ark was a vehicle out of an old world dominated by sin and by the curse, and to carry them into a new world. That ark in its dimensions were 300 
cubits by 50 cubits by, uh, uh, let me think what it was. It was 300 by 50 by uh, 30 cubits. All of those are numbers that denote something about redemption. 30 is the number for the blood of Christ. 50 is the number that means Pentecost. And 300 is the number of completion. This ark was pitched within and without with pitch. The word pitch it there is the Hebrew word kephar, and it's the same exact Hebrew word that we translate atonement, where he's talking about the atoning sacrifices of the Old Testament. So what seals us in this ark called Christ to the day of redemption is the precious blood of Jesus. It's what keeps the world out and keeps us sealed into the redemption. There's only one door. His name is Jesus. There's only one window above. And if, that signifies if you're going to look out, you're going to look up. And that ark, uh, out of that ark, there was released two birds. I think all of this is powerful stuff that you've probably heard me teach over, but I'm going to just hit some of the, because I think it's good to bring out of our treasures things both new and old. We're talking about the old gate. There's some things that I think we need to remember. And when the, he, he released those birds to fly out of, the, out of the ark, they fly all the way through the scriptures and the unclean bird lands in the book of Revelation where Babylon has become the hold of every foul spirit in the cage of every unclean and hateful bird. But the dove only has to fly to the book of Matthew where Jesus is coming up out of the river Jordan. And when Jesus comes up out of the river Jordan, the dove landed on Jesus and John the Baptist saw the dove land and he knew this is the one because right here was the real ark that was emerging out of water. And it was water baptism is a picture of the ark of Noah because the apostle Peter talked about that the, that the, uh, the picture of Noah is a picture of water baptism. I mean, the New Testament writers literally talk about that. Because once you come up out of the waters of baptism, there's a, there's, a, there's a Holy Spirit that lands on you. And the Holy Spirit was looking for the olive branch, and it found it in the river with John the Baptist as he was coming up out of the river. And what he was announcing is the new world is here, and the new world is Jesus himself. It's not an accident that that ark lands on a mountain called Ararat. The word Ararat means the curse has been reversed. It lands in the seventh month. I believe it is the 21st day of the month during the Feast of Tabernacles. None of this stuff is accidental, ladies and gentlemen. And then God puts a rainbow in the cloud and says, this is my covenant that I'll never destroy the earth after this manner again. We find that rainbow carried all the way through the scriptures and we find it in Revelation, the fourth chapter, when there's one seated on the throne and a rainbow round about the throne. It pictures the new covenant. So I'm, I'm showing you that there are things that are both new and old. We could talk about the Ark of the Covenant. When God told Noah, or not, not Noah, when God told Moses and gave him the blueprint for building the tabernacle of Moses, he said, see that you build everything according to the pattern that I showed you in the heavens. And everything about the tabernacle of Moses was a picture of redemption. This tabernacle pitched in the wilderness was a picture of the true tabernacle of God, which was Jesus Christ again. And you see even the arrangement of the furniture in the tabernacle was arranged in the shape of a cross. And every piece of furniture that was in the ark was placed at a bleeding spot where Jesus bled, trying to show us something about redemption. When the camp was at rest, 
It was three on the north, three on the south, three on the east, three on the west. And it was showing us that the, even the camp, when it was at rest, was camped in the shape of the cross, so that when the message of the cross is preached, it will bring you into the rest that the children of Israel could see that they, 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 they literally, if you could have flown over this in a, in a helicopter, would have seen that this, in fact, was a picture of the redemption of the cross, of people in the cross. And you know, I think about uh, Balaam when he went up, he was hired by Balak to prophesy and curse the people of God. When he finally got up in the mountain, the third time he got up there to curse the people, he said, when I beheld Israel in her tents, he reared back and said, if God has blessed Jacob, who can curse him? The reason he couldn't curse them is because he saw Israel in their tents. He saw the camp at rest in the shape of a cross. And I declare to you that because of the cross of Jesus Christ, you and I have been redeemed from the curse, the curse of Adam, the curse of the law, the curse of generational curses. We are not up under any curse, any shape, fashion, or form because Jesus was made a curse for us, for cursed is he that hangs on a tree. Oh, when I think about preaching of the cross, I think about the preaching of what he accomplished in the finished work of Calvary. When Moses made the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant, it's a powerful picture of, 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 of something. It was the Bible calls that a shadow. And if you see the shadow as something standing in the light, and I don't think it's an accident. When you look at the Ark of the Covenant, that you can see that it was literally a blood-sprinkled mercy seat. In the New Testament, Jesus is called our propitiation, which is a mercy seat. Inside of that ark was the unbroken tablets of the law because Jesus completely and totally fulfilled the demands of the law and then nailed it to the cross so they could no more make any legal demands. It's in the ark laid up before the testimony as a testimony before God that God could view us from the mercy seat as if we never broke one law. And it was the golden pot of manna, which we find in Revelation was the hidden manna. To him that overcomes, I will give him to eat of the hidden manna. We know that that bread speaks of Christ for as your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and are dead. Uh, he said, uh, I am the true bread that came down from heaven, that if a man eats that, he'll live. Uh, and it was the, the, the uh, rod of Aaron that budded, which speaks of a priesthood that never fails. Jesus became a priest after the order of Melchizedek. But they had the mercy seat had the, the, the cherubs that stood on top of it with the wings uh, as they would stretch out one towards another, and they would overshadow this mercy seat because their focus was not outward. It was in, The focus was they were focusing on the mercy seat. They're looking one toward another, and they're crying, holy, 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 on the basis of this mercy seat. And what I want you to see is this powerful picture is a shadow of something that was to come. When you come to John's gospel, I believe it is chapter 20, and the apostles and Mary and the apostles came and they stooped down to look into the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. They saw an angel standing at the head and one at the foot of where Jesus had lain. And where Jesus had laid was incredibly the real mercy seat. The one that Moses built was a shadow, but they found the thing that was standing in the light and that was a blood-sprinkled mercy seat. 
a stone rolled away which declares the law has been fulfilled and taken out of the picture. And I think it is also incredible to note that when God drove Adam and Eve out of the garden, the Bible said that He put two angels at the east of the garden, not to keep them out, but to keep the way to the tree of life. Powerful pictures. But again, when you come into John chapter 20, I submit to you that this is the same two angels that are standing by the way in a garden place. They were in a garden. Jesus prayed in a garden. He, he, he was crucified uh, and, and buried in a garden. Why, why a garden? Because if you don't replant the garden with a different seed, you're going to get the same crop. But as Mary stooped down and looked, she saw an angel standing at the head of the, and wanted to put, I submit to you that she found the two angels that were keeping the way back to the tree of life because the tree of life, Adam had access to a tree of life and he chose a tree of death, but Jesus chose a tree of death and he turned it into a tree of life. When Mary of Magdala walked up to Jesus after his resurrection, she said, Sir, I thought you were the gardener. Oh, he in fact was the gardener, and he had just put him back in the finished work and was the guard and the keeper of the new garden. Hallelujah. And so what I want you to see is that all of these pictures and uh, are, are, some, are both something new and something old. Are you following my thinking with this old gate? Because I think we need to grasp. I've seen many grace preachers even who say we just need to throw away the old Testament. Now, I think we need to know how to read the Old Covenant and the Old Testament. We need to understand some of these covenants and some of these pictures to better understand where we are at in this Reformation. Because by the time you get to the book of Revelation, especially if you don't understand some of these types and shadows, you're not going to understand when he starts talking about trumpets. You're going to think it's fat babies with wings. If you don't see Ark of the, uh, the Ark of His Testament, you're not going to know that's a picture of something. If you don't see the New Jerusalem, you won't understand what that's about. You're going to think it's a restored old Jerusalem, when in reality, all of these pictures that are through the book of Revelation can be found not in USA Today or CNN or uh, any other news outlet. That's not how you hermeneutically interpret the Scriptures. You interpret the Scriptures by comparing spiritual things with spiritual things. And it's like I get to the book of Revelation and I almost hear the Holy Spirit say, What? Do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? And so what happens is, is that you learn how to see these symbols and these pictures. And first century Hebrews did understand some of this, and that's why they understood when these letters were sent to seven churches that were really in Asia, they understood the typology of this redemption. I'm telling you, we need to take something old and something new. Well, we're about to run out of time today. Let me just encourage you to take a moment to uh, go to our website again if you'd like to watch these and, and follow us. Uh, you can watch them again on YouTube. But also consider becoming a partner with us as we don't do much to try to raise money on this program, but we do need your help. So if you could go to our website and give via PayPal or credit card, you can go through our PayPal system and you can actually set up for a monthly debit if you'd like to become a partner. Thank you for doing that. God bless you. 
I am excited to announce the release of my latest book titled The Great I Am. In this book, we will explore the seven times in the Gospel of John that Jesus says, I am. When he uses that phrase, it is always in contrast to something from the Old Covenant. For instance, they thought Moses and the law was the door into the sheepfold, but Jesus said to them, I am the door. They thought that Israel was the true vine, but Jesus said to them, I am the vine, you are the branches. As you read the pages of this book, you will discover that Jesus removed the covenant of death and replaced it with the covenant of life. Get your copy of the book, The Great I Am, today.